Hi, this is Vince Macaron, and we're doing a, a nice episode of Talking Blues. Yeah, I used to work with a guy named Tony Macaron, who's at the Hudson's Bay Company. There's no relationship, is there? I think there is a relationship, but it's quite distant. That's my dad's name as well. Oh, really? It's not the same guy, for sure. <laughs> but uh, apparently all the macarons are related at some point. Where does the macarons come from? It's do you know? Sort of, I do. I mean, well, I guess I, I know where our tribe uh, sort of grew up the last few generations. And that's sort of the southern part of Italy. If you visualize the boot, it would be around the Achilles. Oh, on the on the leg and uh yeah so it's that side uh it's very mountainous a small village that my parents grew up in and have you been there i went once i i spent three or four days and met a bunch of relatives i'd never uh, met before it was it was wonderful can you speak italian uh, very poorly, and it's a dialect. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, when I spoke Italian in Italy, I had everybody in stitches because it was a 90-year-old accent that I was using, apparently. Wow. That's so it. you come from Sudbury? Sudbury, Ontario, That's yes. where you were born? Correct. Um, how did your parents wind up there? Inco. So there's a big mining company there, and that was a big draw. And I remember my dad sharing the story of sort of the interview process so, of, of, of course, somebody must have sponsored my parents or my dad to come to Canada. I think that was my Uncle Mike. And he ended up in Sudbury because of work. And uh, they, back then, this would be the, I guess, early 50s, they hired you based on your weight. If you were 140 pounds and, and nimble, you're in. Really? Yes. How long did you live in Sudbury? Uh, I kind of left and came back a few times as, you know, people, 17, 18 year olds do. But I guess I left for good around 20 years old. So that would be, you know, the early 80s, 83. Was music related to this? Or were you into music at this point? Oh, very much. Yes. How did that begin? That began because I am the seventh of eight children. So I have older siblings who collected a lot of records, a lot of vinyl, I grew up, um, you know, them playing classic right. rock and a lot of blues, actually. So my, my blues education began with my older brothers and sisters and their friends having really good record collections, I must say. Did anybody else in your family play music? My dad uh, sang opera around the house. Uh, as the story goes, he might have had an opportunity when he was young, but he chose to, you know, get married and have children. At least that's how he tells it. How eight of them. A whole bunch, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so he, he was musical, but I, I can't say that it was, uh, you know, promoted in the household to pursue that as a career. Right. Certainly a hobby was okay, and I chose drums, which were, you know, that's hard to, with all the kids and parents around. You know, practice time was, a, you know, a bit of a premium. It had to be certain hours. How, okay, so how did you choose the drums? What made you choose drums? I always heard the drums, so there I would, I would, I got hand-me-downs when my uh, brothers and sisters moved out, and these records were really scratched, and it was mostly, you know, like the Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Mott the Hoople, that type of stuff, and a lot of blues, all the, the Kings, Albert King, B.B. King, 
So I inherited those records and I just always heard drums. I mean, I, I, to this day, I hear the rhythm first. I hear the drums, the patterns, you know, the subtleties of drumming. I, it might be years before I know the entire lyri- the lyrics of an entire song right. to this day. So, so then I would get, uh, you know, the typical pots and pans and story and uh, wooden spoons, you know, and drive my mom crazy. I'm sure. And, but it was just in me from the beginning, always about drumming. It's interesting that you said you just always heard drums. I was just listening. I'm working on a documentary about a cellist. And this one person says, every time I hear a string quartet, the first thing I hear is the cello. And I found that really interesting. And you heard the drums. Correct. Wow. So who made a big impression on you as a drummer? Well, as far as the, the, some of the artists I just mentioned, so of course, John Bonham, I think he's still my favorite of, of Led Zeppelin. Um, and it wasn't just the way he drummed, it, you know, the production was very different mm-hmm. than a lot of music being recorded back then. The drums were out front. Um, he, he tended to pick a pattern and stick to it for the most part and come back to it. Where a lot of drumming in the late 60s was sort of uh, more loosey-goosey and, you know, it was more free. Right. Um, if you just think of like Jimi Hendrix Live or something, yeah, you know, the yeah. bass and drums just are meandering constantly. <laughs> All over the place. Yeah. And that never really, I don't know, I didn't really connect with that as much as something, sort of the patterns of, uh, or Ian Pace from, from Deep Purple. So the, I think both of these examples, they, and I love the Rolling Stones as well. But um, so they had a, a background in jazz and, and possibly studying rudiments or military stuff. So that gave them precision plus the creativity of what right. was happening at the time. So those are my early sort of classic rock um, influences. But again, there was a lot of blues in the collection. And I was listening to and playing along with uh, many of you know the, the big artists, the Muddy Waters and Howling Wolves. You know, from the wow. 60s and 70s, they were all in the collection. So at what point did you think, I want to be a musician? I think I thought that since I was a kid, but I, I didn't really, you know, I, I took a lot of courage to ask my parents for the money to get my first little drum set. And then lessons were, you know, there was eight kids, yeah, so yeah, this sure. was extra money that wasn't really, you know, available uh, with one income. So, um, I sort of put it on the side. I think I let myself imagine that I could be a rock star type of thing someday, but never really took it seriously until I'd say my, um, mid teens, 16, 17, I started to jam with a band in Sudbury and it was, it was pretty hard rock, I must say. And at that point I thought, I don't know, maybe I could make a career of this. Um, however, off to engineering school, I went instead. Really? Yeah. Uh, with the thoughts of being an engineer? Was that the goal? Uh, with the thought of this is what my parents thought I should do. And, uh, if I wanted to stay at home, that's what I needed to do. Right. And then at what point did you come to Toronto? Once you graduated or? Uh, I didn't even get to graduate. So... I went to Cambrian College and studied engineering for two years. It was all math and physics, my worst subjects. So <laughs> I always question, what am I doing there? Because this is not my thing. But then I got a placement in a mining company and, and started making really good money. So I stayed there for a year and a half, saved up, quit everything, 
quit the job, didn't go back for third year of engineering school, and moved to Toronto to seek my fortune, as they say, with did, a few bandmates. Did you buy a new drum set? <laughs> I did. I did. What I bought kind a, did you buy? A Canwood, which is not in, in, in circulation anymore. Sorry, I have a cherry red Canwood. It's a Canadian-made uh, West Coast company. Wow. Yeah. And they use pearl hardware and, and it's Canadian maple shells. So that's, uh, yeah, it was the first sort of real drum set I had. So when you moved to Toronto, the idea was, I'm going to become a musician. That's correct. And, and, and make a living. And I moved with two other gentlemen uh, and never saw them again. We never, we all moved together. And then reality hit like, you know, rent. And we all got jobs and never practiced or, you know, everybody. And they moved back. Right. How did you continue with music? I think my family, that most of my family had left Sudbury. And so I got to move in with my brother and sister-in-law. And that really helped. You right. know, like yeah. They rented me a room for next to nothing. This allowed me to take my time and, and, and get, you know, meet people and get to know the city. And uh, I also... Um, would jam with some guys that were much older than me. These were friends of my brothers and sisters, the older ones, Dennis Gomo, who still plays in a group called Genis, and he plays guitar, and, and his partner plays cello, backed oh. on the cello. And they're, they're playing festivals to this day. So he took me under his wing. He, would, he came to the house. He heard I was a drummer. I was 13. And he said, let me hear you play, kid, or something. And he was really into the blues, and he liked what he heard enough. So when I moved to Toronto... He invited me to play at a weekly jam session, so that you know that really helped me hone my skills. What what year would this be, and how old would you have been? Eighty four ish, okay. and so now I am. I don't know, twenty, right? Twenty one. Tell me about the jam sessions. Tell me what that gave you. So it gave me uh, exposure to a lot more. Uh, the nuances of blues and 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 these guys again were professionals by day but you know sort of weekend warriors if you will most right. of them so they had a beautiful equipment and the most extensive blues collection you could imagine so they're what the songs they wanted to do i you know ha hadn't heard to this point they were you know more eclectic collectors of, of the vinyl and you know we we delved into that and it just exposed me to you know a much wider uh, set of artists okay so when I think of blues drumming, sure, I think of Willie Big Eye Smith. Okay, and I think of his looseness in his playing, right? Like a, a, it's it's not a metered thing, right? He's back and forth, straddling the pocket, right? Right? Like I'm 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 not a professional drummer, but that's when I see him. When I used to see him, that's what I saw with somebody who was just in the groove, but all over the place, right? Which is somewhat different from what you had described in terms of the type of drumming that you liked, which was more um, disciplined. Correct or not correct? Uh, yes and no, that's true. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm influenced by him. I'm, Of course, all the shuffles I heard, there's so many, you know, that's a very common yeah, pattern yeah. in blues. And, um, you know, the musicians who ended up in Chicago and have that sound, especially the shuffle or slow blues, I mean, that was... That was my early influences. So, right. 
Um, there was, of course, the British invasion. They had their own interpretation of all these things, but they were influenced by the same Chicago set that I think I was just a bit earlier. Um, but I, you know, for example, back to that sort of less loosey-goosey, when, when Stevie Ray Vaughan came out, and that just, it was so sort of tight and precise. Yeah, I have to, you know, you're, you're making me realize I am more attracted to that style of drumming. So were, sure. you, were you greatly influenced by Stevie Ray Vaughan and his band? I was, yes. Like I so many others. I saw him a few times, and yes, what's his name, Chris Layton, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. plays with Kenny Wayne Shepherd now. Yes, exactly. So he influenced me a lot. I really studied his shuffle. It's more of a Texas feel. It's different. Right. Got a different emphasis. I've been to Chicago uh, and touring with the sidemen, and uh, we'd go into to bars and you know on our off nights. And it's a sound that we, you know, nobody else can reproduce. It's just it's a regional thing. Right. I've heard that there's a Toronto sound as well. Um, I wouldn't be able to explain the difference. It's just nuanced, but uh, that Chicago sound or that Texas sound or even Kansas City, whatever, as you go through the world, there are differences and they're subtle in right. the drumming. But uh, oh, I love them all. Um, okay, so you mentioned the Sidemen, and this is probably the first... When I first met you, you were playing with the Sidemen, and that would have been early 2000s. Uh, even before, well, it's, we started before, but yeah. we might have met later, yeah. right? Um, tell me about how you got into the Sidemen, or are there other notables that you want to talk about before? You got no, into... that's okay. That's a great sort of leaping off point, because I think that's where it started for me in earnest in Toronto, right. was with that band. And they had a manager, uh, Tana, I forget her last name, and they were holding auditions, and they had heard of me, um, I'm not sure how, but I went in to audition. I'd never met the guys before. I guess this is the early 90s. And I played. And it went pretty well. I think we played a Johnny Winter Groove, if I recall. And then their next question is, we're leaving on tour in two days. Can you go? And I said, yes. And I think that's why I got the gig. Like I was one of the only drummers who could, uh, could leave you know, right. in two days. Didn't have a job or whatever whatever I didn't have to stay around so off I went I got to know them you know uh pretty quickly just I guess by, you would yeah so where did you tour to we started around Ontario and then uh we had an agent and <laughs> his name's RJ and we're still friends and uh he had this great idea for routing that we would go play a festival in Quebec City and the next gig was in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So we still talk about that drive. I don't know how long it was, 36 hours or something? Yikes. So, uh, yeah, there was a few curses on the way there, like, oh, my goodness, what are we doing? But, I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for the world. We had a great time. It's the first time I saw the rest of Canada. Uh, we're still really close friends. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, we play once a year. We're playing later. And in July, we're doing uh, some gigs up in, in northern Ontario. And, and uh, yeah, that was sort of the, the jumping off point in blues in Toronto for me and that band, the Sidemen. Okay, so the Sidemen were, like, they made them name for themselves. They, I don't know at what point they worked with... Um, Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis Walker, Walker. Yeah. right? And then that was like the second or third album. Yes, um, correct. The band also got nominated 
for WC Handy. I believe it was at the Blues Music Awards by that time. Uh, we got, yeah. I think we got uh, nominated for a WC Handy and, and several Maple Blues Awards, which we won, and a Juno as right. well. Yeah. So I'm having trouble remembering the name of that album, but it is one of the greatest Canadian blues albums ever made. What oh, am I wow. thinking? The side sidemen's with with, with Joe the one Lewis? that got no sorry the one that got nominated with oh later on um, yes rattlebag rattlebag so if That's, you haven't heard rattlebag what a great album that was oh thank you um, and also just somewhat different than your typical blues that was with uh, Colin Linden yeah Linden at the helm and we recorded at. Uh, the Tragically Hip Studio in Bath, Ontario. So we spent a week there, and that was a wonderful experience. You know, just we were immersed in this in the recording completely. We slept in the house. We recorded during the day and evening. Uh, Colin had a wonderful schedule. We had a great engineer. So you know, the typical thing. We did the bass and drums first. So Greg Marshak, the bassist, and I were sort of done after a day or so. And then, and then they really focused on, you know, layering a lot of guitars right. and, and the vocals came later. Somewhat, not, not your typical blues recording with all the layering and whatever, right? Yeah, and he also took loops, which yeah, were different. Which he took, cool, he yeah. took, like, he said, play this pattern, and I did it. Or, or he didn't even tell me he was doing it. He would just take a snippet of my drumming and then loop it, and that became an intro. And, uh, yeah, he really experimented and uh, I think, yeah, that started a whole, you know, I, I, I hear those influences in the next generation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing album. If you haven't heard it, Thank Rattlebag you. is an album worth checking out. So then you get recognized by the Blues, Blues Foundation or the Blues Music Awards or the WC Handy Awards at that time. What did that do for the band? It's sort of the most uh, commercial success I've ever had right uh you know in my 30 plus years of being a musician um it afforded us opening for you know the buddy guys coco taylor whoever was touring and some really sweet gigs you know just having our own set at at harbor front during a blues festival or uh we toured uh, all of canada uh, several times and you know Joe Lewis Walker decided to produce us as you mentioned and yeah Colin Linden so we started to be recognized uh, we even had a video we won some awards and then everybody started to grow up a little bit and get married and have kids and and then people were started to come and go in the band yeah I mean that's a tough thing because all of a sudden the band gets more recognized and they have more opportunities which means more commitments and more days on the road and I presume that that's that was difficult for the band in some ways yeah I think I was the first one I was in Calgary Alberta I'll never forget this we're on tour uh, and the bar I forget the name of the bar I think it's torn down now but it was a strip joint during the day and early evening and then blues at night so of course classic and um, we all got a tiny little room upstairs. It was like a rooming house as well. So, you, you, you know, I think you get the picture. Yeah. 
and there was a payphone in the hallway, and that that's that was the communication back then. No cell phones, right. no internet. One payphone for the whole floor. Can I ask you, how long were you on the road for at this point? Do you remember? Yeah, around, we would do 60, 70 days, so two, two and a half months. Wow. A bit of a stretch, all by van. Right. Nice, cozy. Yeah. And the phone rang, and it was my uh, girlfriend at the time, who later became, you know, we got married later. But, uh, and yeah, we're going to have a baby. So that's where I learned I'm going to be a dad. And I told the guys in the band that night, and we're all like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And, you know, I, I was thinking, I don't know anything about kids, and what, how about our music career? And, you know, so that was, you know, fast forward a year, and, you know, we had a little daughter, and I decided I'm missing her her growing up, and I made this big decision to to leave the touring, the band, you know. Okay, so how tough? was that decision I understand family is important and and seeing your child grow up is is you know obviously very important but how difficult was making that decision for you making the decision wasn't well it was pretty hard it was hard but I mean you know once once you have a little baby in your arms that's that's your own and you know they they melt your heart and so then it wasn't that hard the hard part though was just living with it so I decided to leave the band. I mean, I'd, I'd been in a van just constantly for a couple of years. And all of a sudden, I was, uh, we, we rented a house in Mississauga in the suburbs where every house looked the same. And I, I became the, the parent who stayed home. Right. And, uh, yeah, I was just curious. What are the guys doing now? What city are they in? You know, they got a different drummer. And musically, were you doing anything else or had you just abandoned music? Not, I didn't try and abandon music, but, you know, living in a, in a, in the suburbs and, you know, and not being in that band. So I did a few gigs, but it was, it was a pretty, uh, sort of less busy time for me as a musician. I was focusing on my family. Right. Which, but which it was makes tough. total sense. But it was really hard. I mean, the honest answer was really hard. Yeah. I, I, I missed it tremendously. I questioned my decision as uh, maybe I could have pulled this off somehow, but no, I mean, you know, we wanted one of us to be at home, so, yeah, and I have no regrets. Right, yeah. and that's the kid that's now traveling in Japan. That's correct. Many years later. Little Gracie is now, uh, yeah, 20, going to be 24, and in, and in Japan with her brother Max at the moment. So, yeah, fast forward, and then this this happened to... Greg had got married and had, and so did Kyle and, you know, so did Paul. And so, yeah. but I, I was sort of the first one to, to, to sort of leave the band. And it was, it was a huge thing. And then I got back in, back and forth. Can I ask you, what do you think, I mean, I don't know if this is easy to, to answer, but at that point, where did you think that band would go? Because obviously it had more success than a lot of other bands. It did. And, you know, it, it toured quite a while. But did you think that where it could possibly wind up was better than it actually did or worse than it actually did? Or I mean, did you have a sense of that when you said, oh, I'm, I'm not going to tour the band anymore. I might be giving up this thing. It was sort of at the peak. I mean, they were, they were opening for, they were always opening, they were playing nice festivals. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought, I mean, you know, blues music is not 
what we consider popular music. Mm-hmm. It's not on the radio. In order to support that, you have to travel. You have right. to let people see you. And then there might there might have been some CD sales off the stage and in the stores. And there was, actually. We did pretty well at HMV at that time. Um, but when you look, I mean, who are the, the biggest sort of bands like us? I mean, we had a really aggressive style. That's what we were known for. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, uh, I don't know. Stevie Ray Vaughan came along, and he he was touring the world, but he was a guitar hero. You know, we were, we were different than that. So I don't know. I I I think I saw them as uh, playing festivals. You know, sharing the stage with people, but certainly not like the level of a Stevie Ray Vaughan okay. or something. Yeah. Okay, so you just I just stay home. You did some gigs, and and then I see you all playing with all these different people. Probably around that time with Chris and Diana and oh, Johnny sure. Max and yeah. whatever. Maybe yeah. a few years later. But. Yes, yes. Few, yeah, fast forward a bit, yes. So was that difficult to get back into it? It was. I think I went through a period of, you know, almost a musical depression or something. And I wanted to distance myself from it. So you didn't play degree. the drums at all? Yeah. They, they were packed in the garage and I rarely... You know, I rarely gigged anymore until I, you know, just decided, okay, I, I need to start going back out and then going to jam sessions and let people, you know, people make assumptions that you're on the road all the time. That happens. Right. Or you're not available. So out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. So, you know, I made a point of sort of getting my name and my face back out there. Do you that. remember what inspired Was it just that the kids have grown up a little bit or was it something else that triggered that? Uh, I, I think a combination of all the above. I mean, once once they're in a, a daycare situation or a, a preschool, then, you know, you don't have to be around quite as much. Yeah. And, and then another kid came along. So, I mean, I made we made a decision as a family that I would stay home because it made sense. Their mother had a much better paying job than I was ever going to get uh, right. by working. So... So, yeah, I decided to stay home and raise my kids and, and just sort of keep one toe in music. And I went some different directions. I started a team building company using mm-hmm. drumming. I got a partner in that business and that started taking off as well. So, so can you explain that? Because you do some corporate work. Corporate work, correct. So that was called Rhythm Works. And uh, while taking a teaching course, the instructor of that course... Uh, really impressed me so I, I talked to her after I said I'm thinking of starting this company where we use drumming for team building and for yeah, a metaphor for working well together listening skills communication right. you know it be- became very trendy very quickly after that and she said sure I'm interested so we met and we created rhythm works and and we you know we devised uh, divided our, our duties into one person would, you know, try and get all these gigs on one one side, and the other would work on the material and and develop the curriculum. And we, yeah, we ended up working for pharmaceutical companies, banks. We had a great run of several years, and then the market was quite flooded with many other companies right. like it. So uh, we ended up, you know, stop stopping that. I still do occasional work in that field. Okay, so the other thing that's interesting. Is he went back to school. 
So this, I don't know where it comes. I think it was 2008, but I don't know where that is. To The, the last time I, time I went back, that's correct. Yeah. So it's, what made you do that? I was touring with Paul Reddick and uh, Teddy Leonard, and we were in Caslow, B.C. Uh, this moment is sort of crystallized in my mind. And the next morning after our performance, we... Uh, a lot of musicians were in the same hotel, and we had breakfast. Uh, somebody was already at the table, but he was alone, so we asked if we could sit. And it was a jazz bassist who teaches at Humber. His name escapes me at the moment. And I just started asking him questions. This is 2007. And he told me about his life, that he teaches from September to April, and then tours you know, for spring and summer, every year, every year, that's what he does. And he said, the pay is great, I have benefits, and I still get to play. And I don't know, something went off in my mind, like, I want to do that too. Wow. So when we got home from the tour, I inquired about attending Humber College and their jazz program. It was a um, three-year diploma at that time, just, just about to switch over to the degree, the four-year so I got in on the last year of that, and yeah, that's that. That's what did it. Just hearing about his his lifestyle and it appealed to me. So I think I remember seeing you around that time. I think we might have gone to Cleveland to see Doctor John. Was I was there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we remember talking about that, and you were talking about going to school. Um, so tell me what the goal was when you decided that. Okay, that sounds like a cool life. What were you thinking that you would become a teacher? Yes. Now, that's, okay, sorry. That the was, other thing is, sure. You said that you never, your parents couldn't afford drum lessons. Did you ever take drum lessons? I think I saved up from you know odd jobs, and I got one or two in Sudbury, but no, nothing formal. I taught myself. It was all by ear. Was that easy? Along. Sorry. Was that an easy thing to do? Well, when you're a kid, you don't think about easy or not. You just sort of do it. So right. my parents did allow me. I mean, they did eventually buy me a drum set, and they allowed me to have a room downstairs with with a stereo, and I put the speakers near my head and blasted it and played along to ZZ Top and Led Zeppelin and whoever else, all the blues artists, you know. Buddy Guy and Junior Wells was uh, on a continuous play around my place. So um, I thought I would, I, I was naive when I made that decision, like to becoming a post-secondary teacher, you know, you need to get a master's in, right. in music and composition or musicology or something. But anyway, I just thought I would start the process. And so I did that. And along the way, I thought, well, I might as well get my Bachelor of Education as well. So after the undergrad at Humber, I attended York and got a teaching degree. And then after that, I've been attending York uh, sort of part-time and getting my master's, which should be attained by the end of this year. Wow. So first of all, congratulations on that. Because oh, I think going you. back to school is a difficult thing. <laughs> was going back to school easy? Like, I don't know what you were like as a student. Right. I always think it would be difficult to go back to school. How was it for you? It was many things. So I'm now... Uh, just picture I'm 40-something and everyone else is 18 or 19. So that was, that was a you know, different, right. to say the least. 
I ended up becoming, you know, friends with uh, the people that, you know, were much younger than myself. And, you know, they, they would still invite me to the occasional party, which was <laughs> nice of them. Maybe, you know, invite the old guy to a party or something. But I'm still in touch with them. So, as you know, when you go to school, these become your circle of friends mm-hmm. and players that you call on. So, um, that went really well. Let me just turn this off. So, um it was hard. I, I did want to quit after year two. I mean, I had two kids trying to pay a mortgage and try and jumble all these things at the same time. And I thought, you know, but I had too much invested. So I just kept going. Wow. Yeah. I, I took five years for the undergrad and then teaching teachers college back then was only one year. So that went by pretty quick. And then two years for the master's, and now I'm in the, the writing stage for the thesis. So musically, when you went back to school for music, how we, what was it like learning music in a formal way? Right. It was the first time for me. Right. So um, at these types of institutions, they look at all the students as having the same level of, let's say, keyboard skills, or maybe not the same level, but an understanding. And they just assume that, you know, you know your theory well enough to be at a college level. In other words, most most of my colleagues had studied music all the way through. Yeah. And they were in the A band at high school, and, and this was the next natural progression. I had none of that. I didn't really take music in Did school. Did you play anything other than drums and percussion? Not too much, no. I mean, I was I mess around on guitar, and when I write music, I tend to use a keyboard, yeah, and okay. some software that emulates sounds like bass lines and chords, and so that helps. But no, I, I you know, I'm a terrible piano player, and I think I'm in real, if I really think about it, I'm a frustrated bass player at heart. I love the bass, really? you know. Oh yeah. I really, I just think it's the most important instrument in the entire band. Well, as a drummer, I can see why you would think that. Well, they're holding down, I mean, both the rhythm and the roots of all the chords, and sometimes they're outlining melodies. I mean, it's quite, it's quite an important, mm-hmm. especially of a trio or quartet or something. Who, who impresses you? Uh, somebody you've interviewed recently, uh, Wayne Deatter. I mean, him and I really have a, a, a nice musical connection and we're good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know he was influenced by Ian D'Souza, a yeah, wonderful yeah. player. And I can, I can hear their, uh, the way they mute the strings and very rhythmic. Wayne is also an incredible guitar player. Yeah. So that also comes out in his bass playing, his knowledge of melody and he's a big Paul McCartney fan. So so he impresses me. I mean, the, the Greg Marshak and the Sidemen, these are people who I just grew up playing right. you know, with, and, and uh, we, we know each other musically very well. But uh, at Toronto, we're very blessed. I mean, it's... I've recently been working with a, a you know, younger set of musicians as well. I have two CDs out, and uh, Justin Gray uh, co-produced my last CD, and he's a bassist. So he has a great story in that he he wanted to study Indian music and went and, and moved to India under a guru and lived with him. That's what you do in these situations. And then he, you know, so he brought that entire influence into his bass playing. Wow. And uh, yeah, I'm very impressed with him. And yeah. Well, knowledge. tell me about 
your your project, your musical project, Lost Variant. Sure. Um, it's world music. Tell me where. I mean, that's correct to say, right? I think so. <laughs> I mean, that's it's the the catch-all phrase. Okay. I would... So how did that guy who loved classic rock and blues go into world music? How did that? Was that influenced by the schooling you had, or not? Um, Humber was mostly jazz. So no, I think I remember that seminal moment of making a new friend in my, I don't know if I was 18 or just before I left Sudbury and they were a South African family and they moved in our neighborhood and we became, you know, fast friends. And so he introduced me to reggae music, which I'd never heard. Right. Maybe like some 10 CC or something, you know, some British (laughs) reggae. But um, Bob Marley came on, and I, I just, it was so different, the way the rhythm worked and where the beat is and the way the bass avoids beat one at all times. It's completely new for me. And at first, I didn't really, you know, find it that interesting to listen to, but I gave it another chance and another chance, and all of a sudden, I was hooked. And I think that made me uh, look much further than classic rock and blues and that at the same time, I would start noticing, you know, a lot of that music in the 60s it has uh, electric sitar in it, right. T- tons of it, you know, starting, you know, even before George Harrison and the Beach Boys, everybody started experimenting with world music or right. world music instruments, at least. And so it was always there, but I, I don't think I knew what the names of the instruments were or, or why they were using them or, you know, the lifestyle that went along with it. And then I think another sort of solidifying uh, moment was getting a job at HMV in the world music department, I guess. So I learned all the names just by, by filing the inventory. Right. Oh, who's this? And I don't know. I would remember them and look them up and then buy the CD with my employee discount. And yeah, I just developed a big collection. And then radio happened, like uh, Ken Stower of CIUT, you know, big influence. Um, and unlike a lot of people back in the 90s and 2000s, I would buy the track. You know, I didn't want to just get it from somebody else. I right. wanted to own it. So I started sort of collecting, you know, and I would I would listen to the various, now there's Stingray, there's, well, there's tons of stuff. Yeah. And people make their own playlists on, on Spotify and everything else. and, and they're, But I take the time to find out who it is, even write it down, and buy it. And that's, that's how I got into it. And then studying Latin and African music at Humber certainly expanded my repertoire as well. So as a drummer who started with blues and rock, yes. was it easy to, to become or to play world music or reggae. Like how difficult how difficult is that to adjust from one style of music to another from a drummer's point of view? Right. It 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 takes a lot of practice. I, I wouldn't say it's easy at all. I mean, what's interesting, you know, that I've studied music a lot more in depthly is hearing hearing let's say sort of blues elements in many other styles of music Mm -hmm. especially you know african music and african guitar players um that whole cuban music thing that went to africa and then back to cuba that's very interesting to me you know um so i love i love because i'm a drummer I, i just tend to hear rhythm first so 
Caribbean music, African music, you know, South American music. Um, it sort of grabs my attention quickly. I still love blues and, right. and my I, I tend to combine and, you know, make these different genres live together in the same song. Okay, so tell me about Lost Variants and, and how that came about. Because it's it's a, a nicely crafted world music album, but not just one type of world music, but many kinds. Correct. I think that's a celebration of my relationships. It's it's a culmination of my years in Toronto and, and not on purpose, you know, where I it was purposeful in, in in making a record and using everybody I have never known in Toronto, but that's this is who you call on when you're making music and you you know, uh, I would just write these songs as sketches and invite people and and tell them this is the melody I came up with, but feel free, like let's collaborate. And you know, uh, so there's it started as a, your original question, uh, a recording is part of the third year uh, criteria at Humber College. They have a wonderful studio there. Right. So uh, you know, the, and that's one of your courses is this recording project, and you have an advisor. And do you have to actually produce a, a record or CD? Three songs. Okay. Minimum. Right. But I, I, I parlayed that. I had all the studio time. So I thought, when am I going to have this again? This is like a, probably a 1,500-a-day yeah, type yeah. studio, you know. So I tried to be really organized, and I brought in, you know, all, all the musicians that I wanted to play on. I had everything ready. We rehearsed, and we used that studio time, and I ended up with, you know, I think recording eight songs and it was all over the map as far as genres goes. There was blues on it and, you know, some New Orleans-influenced stuff and all original stuff. And then, you know, when I was done, I thought, well, I might as well make a CD. I'm just a few songs shy of a full CD, so... Wait, before that... Sure. Was it, how open were these musicians? Like, how did you approach them? You just said, I have a, a school assignment, can you help me? Or Yes. Okay. Yes, and 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 they did help me. I mean... I didn't have a budget or a grant or anything, and they were they were amazing. Because I don't know all of them, but there's some pretty big names. Pretty big names yeah. in in yeah in jazz and so forth. Yeah, really big names. They're all very helpful, you know. And that's the nice thing that, about our community, you know. And we have to reciprocate. If someone says there's no budget for this, but come on out, and of course. You know, and you, you develop a, a rapport with people over the years and, you know, you trust them. They're not going to ask you and, unless they need you. And, right. and and then they're very willing to, to, to do the same for you. Okay, so how, because I've seen you in the studio a few times, I think, with Johnny Max. Yes, with Johnny um, and Metalworks. Yeah, but um, with the work that you've done with Sideman and with Johnny Max and God knows how many other people, how different was this project? Because now, more than others, even though you were in those bands, this is this is your baby, right? That's exactly right. The, the difference, the biggest difference, is I'm at the helm. Right. I'm in charge of everything, and I, I mean, the amount of organization it takes. I think there was forty-seven musicians on the first CD, and wow, maybe twenty-seven or so on the last one. Um, the last one, at least, I had a co-producer in Justin Gray, and he, you know, he kept me on schedule, and he was, he was uh, wonderful to work with, and he's he's done many many CDs 
given that he's just over 30 years old. Um, so that's a huge difference. I just played a gig at Hughes Room, and I think at the end of the night, there was nine musicians on stage. You know, some special guests came right. and sat in. So it takes a lot of organization, um, takes a lot of passion, a lot of dedication. You really have to want it. Uh, it's, it's very different than just being like a side musician and showing up and, you know, you have to, you have to motivate people, uh, book rehearsals. I had to make charts for everybody, you know, that preferred to read. And did you pretty well have the end product in your head? Was it easy to hear or picture what that no. song would be or? No, I, I can't. I mean, I always have the sketches that I, I wrote. It's all original music. So I have that. And with the advent of technology, you can get a pretty nice sounds these days. Mm -hmm. I use Logic, uh, and you know, so there's piano and bass and guitar and drums and percussion and fake horns. So everybody has an idea. But again, with that collaborative piece that I, I like to encourage, it, it it changes, and then all of a sudden it might go a different way. And and you know, I'll say I love this. This is not what the sketch is like, but it's better. Right. Because this person has added their voice, their original, you know, uh, influences that they have from, you know, wherever, wherever experiences they've had from around the world, really. Which is interesting because it does have various geographic genres or whatever. Like it's not one type. It's many different types. And somehow it doesn't seem like things are out of place. There's some sort of a connection between the tunes right and it's you might be speaking to and and just recognizing that what we did is the bass and drums are the same so we did that first we went and recorded the entire album with bass just the bass and drum tracks and then got people to come in i don't know if i should be giving away these trade secrets <laughs> one at a time for the most part right, right. and layering and layering it's just you know it's affordable because then you don't need the whole big... The drums are the expensive part. That's right. the part that you have to ensure you have the proper room and technique and mics and uh, miking techniques to capture. But after that, really, with today's wonderful, you know, in-the-box technology, you can you can do almost any anywhere. Okay, so it was a school project. You had this commitment of having to produce three tracks or more. Where does it go from here? And, and what, what do you see happening? Because it, it's got to be difficult. I think I have, I've decided I have one more CD in me under my own name. And uh, coincidentally, I, I want to go back to the blues thing uh, more. On the third CD? On the third, yeah, okay. probably final CD. This is my, my legacy uh, period <laughs> here, the box set. So I, I will be writing again. And Sorry, I, why, why are you putting a cap on it? Like, why I don't know. I don't know. I just, maybe it's just a romanticizing the... The trilogy? The idea, yeah. yeah, the trilogy. I know. Other people have asked me that. Why, why only three or whatever? But it's certainly, you know, I was, uh, I want to say sideman, but then it's going to be confusing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I was uh, a side musician for almost 30 years never having never writing my own or you know releasing my own stuff so um it just feels like if i do one more cd i will feel like at least fulfilled in in, in something i've always wanted to do so there might be a fourth and a fifth but right okay but can you 
take this on the road? I mean, do you have aspirations for anything other than recording these things and making the trilogy complete? Do you have, knowing how difficult the industry is and everything, right. and also knowing how difficult it would be to get your 27 musicians together to go on the road, right. is there anything, anything other than a recording and maybe a CD release party planned? Or would you not, never consider that? Uh, well, I just did that in December. Uh, we had the CD release party of uh, Los Ferians, so Paseo. And I didn't need all 27, so I would have about, you know, a six-piece six band. Right. And, you know, that covers most of the bases, but it's not going to be exactly the same. But that's okay. Right. I'm, I'm open to this idea that the, tonight's performance is going to be one of a kind. And, and if, if we played, you know, 10 cities in a row, each night is going to be different. I'm open to that. And I, I'm not looking for it to sound exactly like the record at all. I want to celebrate all of the band members' strengths. You right. know, it, it's my band, but it, I, I, don't, I don't want control of the music. I just want, I'm the person who puts it together. And the way, the way it evolves is, is the beauty of, you know, Los Ferriants. And how has it changed you as a musician, this experience? Uh, well, I, I had to, you know, uh, one of the songs on the CD is uh, started as like an Afro-Peruvian sort of groove. And I thought, oh, this really is reminiscent of sort of Moroccan rhythms. And my point is, I better familiarize myself with all of that stuff. So it's it's caused me to you know look a little deeper. If I'm going to drum to these things, I want to honor the tradition at least, and know a little bit about it, you know. So it's made me investigate uh, a little bit deeper in some of the influences. Uh, am I correct in saying that you're going, you're continuing your studies in ethnomusicology? Correct. Yeah. So that means that's partly a study of music of different parts of the world. Correct. Ah, uh, yeah, it usually is, and 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 sort of the sociology of music and why that why that music is created in that region at that time, and the symbolism behind it, if you will, is right. a lot of areas. So they kind of work together, your studies and the music you create. It has. It's sort of evolving at the same time. I don't, you know, I did use uh, part of my recording in in a in a, a course, and 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 they were. They were generous enough to recognize that my work in the recording was something I could apply. Right. So that was that was fortuitous, but I didn't plan it that way like years ago whatsoever. <laughs> okay, so the other thing is that you, you're now teaching a bit. I'm teaching at uh, Georgian College in Barrie. I'm teaching at Centennial College, They all in, in the music realm. Right. So tell me about that. So, so the, so this guy who, did, who didn't take any lessons... Yeah, decided to I know. go to school many years later and learn music. I know. So I've come full circle in a way, and now I, I'm the whole point from that two, 2007 breakfast in in Caslow, BC, has finally come to fruition, and that I'm lecturing now about music, and in, in I'm running a course called Music in Our Lives, and it's perfect, and it just looks at sort of the evolution of popular music and all the issues around it, and each week we hit a different topic and uh, can you give me an example what did you talk about this week well it's over now it oh, ends okay. in april but it um i don't know well i'll just give you sort of a three examples 
we looked at the human voice and then what does that entail and i'm speaking into a microphone right now the microphone the invention of the microphone changed the music industry incredibly in the in the whole production value of music and it it made it so personal and right. these are things people don't think about too much like one invention so i look at a lot of all the technology along the way from the player piano rolls to you know written music to the radio what did that mean payola you know who were the major players just a lot of history stuff slavery works it becomes huge i mean the influence of, of black artists is, is, this is all the music i tend to right. love as well but that comes up a lot in in the course and it because it's it's always present you know so we look at uh the monetary side of music and who was profiting and who was getting ripped off and there's definitely a pattern right you know um so a lot of origins we look at uh you know reggae music and toasting and which led to djs maybe in new york um having parties and the you know, originators of hip-hop and and rap so a historical perspective but always looking at the issues how do you view music differently because of this not being a musician but being a teacher oh that's a great question. It, it provides an understanding. And I don't know, I have to say there are times when I'm actually drumming on a drum set and thinking about the history of the music I'm creating at that moment. For example, last night I, I sat in with uh, Paul Reddick at Sauce on the Danforth. Right. And we did some of his original music and a few covers and I don't know. Uh, it was it's a quiet gig, so I was um, Jody Knight, the drummer, was generous enough to let me sit in, and I. It's a brushes gig, so um, we were playing a shuffle, and it, on the record, it's very aggressive. I am the drummer on the record, so I remember it. Yeah. And but last night it was very quiet, so it just brought me back to the history. You know, the the introduction of of brushes and how they came to be just because of the knowledge. So now I've studied it. I know, you know, some of the early drummers in, you know, in, around New Orleans area and, and, and the era and, and how brushes came to be and, and the hi-hat and, you know, it, it comes into play and it seems to, I don't, I can't explain why or how, but it does weave its way into my, into my playing. Do you still have the same passion for the drums as you did when you first started? I do. I mean, I've just gone through this entire creative thing where I I wrote an original record, I produced it, and I had a CD release, and it's commercially available, and it was a huge undertaking. And now I think I'm on the other side of it, where I'm just, you know, I'm actually looking forward. I have a bunch of gigs coming up in the Jazz Fest, where I'm a hired gun again, and I'm not the band leader, and uh, I'm going to enjoy that for the <laughs> summer and then start uh, writing and recording. I have to admit, my favorite part of creating music is the writing and the production and bringing everybody together. More than the playing. The playing is part of it, but it's just a day or two of the drum parts. Right. Uh, but uh, I, I, I'm really enjoying the producer chair. You know, as a lot of people seem to evolve into that yeah, or yeah. devolve, however so you want to look you, at it. <laughs> can you see yourself doing more of that for other people? I, I can, and it's already started. Uh, there's an, an artist out west, Leslie Pink, who's an old friend, and 
she uh, hired actually Wayne and I co-produced that. So that's a nice, uh, nice uh, bluesy uh, project that we we oh, produced. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, I'd like to do more of that. Um, do I, I still have a passion for the drums? Absolutely. Um, I'd like to get back into practicing and 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 having a routine around the drums. You know, that's been. You know, when when just getting this the masters together and, and getting the teaching requirements going and the lesson plans, you know, you run out of hours. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm still very passionate about drums and drumming. What what do you get out of teaching? What does it do for you personally? It teaches me, and I I, I mean I, I never want to overlook the knowledge in a room. I mean the the students might be 18 all the way up to 40 something or and beyond or 90 something, but, uh, I ask a lot of questions. I want to involve my students in the teaching as much as possible. And I learn, uh, for example, at Centennial, I run a few ensembles and it's more of a student led, uh, program. So I, I learn about music. I will, would never have discovered from them because they bring it in right. and I say, okay, is everyone in agreement? That's great. And then I, if I like it, then I'll explore other songs from them. So I'm learning about repertoire. I'm learning about, you know, technology. There's, you know, because they're 18 to 20, most of them, you know, they're pretty up to date right. on what's out there. So, yeah, they're keeping it fresh for the, for the professor as well. And do you find it when you're dealing with kids, we can call them kids. Sure. It's old, but... When you're dealing with these 18 to 25-year-olds, whatever, are you encouraged by what you see? Are you hopeful for music today and beyond? That's a great question because the, a lot of teachers may you know, get in a staff room and grumble about the next generation. But one thing I like to keep in mind is whatever we, we think they're lacking, like it's from our own history. It's, you know, they're creating a new hit. I mean, technology has changed so mm -hmm. quickly. So whatever skills we think they're lacking, but this is the new reality. This is, this is the baseline, you know, right. the, the, the students are the, you know, the future musicians and the way they are working is the way it's going to be. You know, even if it's quite different than right. the, the way we do it, you know, I have done it. So for example, like, you know, they're, they are going to be the managers and, and the leaders of corporations and businesses. And so, I don't know. I think, I think there's a, a tendency to look at uh, eras gone by as being the best and the most efficient. Um, but I don't think we have a, you know, I'm 55. I, I, I can admit I may not have um, a perspective on the future of these, my current students, you know, that I can really know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So is it really different than the way I came up? Yes. Uh, sometimes I'm worried because they do have aspirations of being quite famous, but um, it seems there th that work ethic for some of them is um, elusive. What's well, weird because the industry has changed so much. So, you know, I, I, I can't imagine dreaming of becoming... And I, I always think it's wrong to dream of becoming famous or rich, that that that's not the right goal to go after. Um, and then as I do this and interview people, I'm always amazed that 
Some of these people have been doing music like yourself for 30, 40, 50 years. And that to me is success more than becoming famous because you don't, most people will never see that. You know, and if you have that as a goal, it just seems kind of unrealistic. Well, that's a great point. I mean, you get to live your life the way you want to. For the last 30 or 40, I've, I've had many. I've had every job known to man, right. part-time or full-time. And, you know, but I always, always had at least one foot in music. And that's when I'm the most happy. I mean, I mean if I could work with musicians around a studio or, or live, and, and, you know, there's been periods of our lives where we, that's all we did. Mm-hmm. And we made it work. Um, and that is success. That's a great. I don't point. know if it's as easy to do that at this point, or five years from now to actually be able to do that to just be a full time musician making decent wage. Have you had uh, interviews and talking about Spotify and you know yeah, yeah. payout stuff? So you know that's very true. Yeah, and the the margin of profit is just becoming so slender and. I don't know. But again, the, the younger people that we're, we spoke of earlier are complete. This, they're a sort of digital native. Right. And so they're used to it, you True. know, where we're grumbling about it. This is, this is where they're, they're coming in, on, you know, right into that. So it's I, not a shock. So I don't know if this is a fair question, but are you now a teacher of music or are you a musician or are you both? I'm both. In fact, this September, I already was. Uh, I'm going to be teaching two ensembles, and I'm the drummer in both of them. So oh, nice. I'm going to be playing with 18, 19 year olds, playing music probably I've never heard of. And it's interesting when they uh, when they want to play a classic rock song. I'm always surprised. They say, oh, how do you know this? Because your parents? No, no, it's from that movie, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, or something. It's always a soundtrack. Right. That's how they, they, they get knowledge about some older music. So that's interesting. Uh, my final question to you, and thank you for, so, for doing oh, this. I well, really my appreciate pleasure. Thanks this. for having me. Um, this journey has been an interesting one because you thought maybe I'll be a musician, became a musician, had you know some success, you toured many parts of the world, and then you kind of gave that up, and now you're back into it. Right. How do you look back on this journey? Of course, we what if ourselves to death in life, but uh, if I'm really clear about it and, and just, you know, analyze sort of what we talked about earlier, this lifestyle I've been allowed to live, has it been stressful at times? Yes. You know, you know especially financially and mm-hmm. when, when you do have a family and so on. But my kids are grown up now. I think they think I'm a little bit cool. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and you know what's interesting just to put a little you know a proud moment is i would play a lot of weird music in the car when my kids were young and they would roll their <laughs> eyes and everything but now you know you they know about them. blues they know about jazz they know about reggae they know about all kinds of stuff that, you know, I expose them to. It's, I mean, are they going to go buy it? Probably not. But I saw some of my, my kids' playlists, and it's, uh, you know. Made you proud. Sonny Boy Williamson was on there, and I wow. thought, oh, wow, this is pretty neat. And that's nothing to do with me. So I have no regrets. It's been an, an incredible journey, uh, lots of ups and downs. There's times when the drums sat on a shelf for, I think, 12 months, not even touched. Yeah. 
And other times where I just, you know, keep it in my car under a blanket and because I have two gigs a day and now I'm, I'm getting to the education part and I'm really, that's where I'd like to go on producing and writing. I didn't really answer your question a few minutes ago about do I see taking Lost Variants on the road with six or ten. If, if the festival wants to fly, you know, six of us somewhere and give us backline and and all of that stuff of course we would love to do that to be honest that's the goal but so how do you get that out there i mean people who people don't know they should definitely check it out just look it up on spotify or whatever your streaming services all of them yeah and lost variants and the album is called o paseo right so yeah it's on all those all those streaming services and itunes and everything else well thank you again for doing this it's a real pleasure talking to you it was a pleasure doing it thank you Michael.